Section 41 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 11, Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 41 The Trade into the North by Aubrey Fullerton One side of a top-story room lined with shelves, and each shelf filled with boxes and rolls of miscellaneous cloth things. The opposite side pulled high from the floor, with colored rugs and thick blankets. One end stacked with tin trunks, boxes of hats, and more blankets. The other with rolls of duffel and bundles of tri-colored sashes. The center of the floor covered crosswise by long tables, and each table filled with assorted sizes of men's ready-made suits, bundles of cotton prints, and still more boxes. That is the dry goods storeroom in Edmonton of one of the northern trading companies. It is in no way different from the ware room of a small wholesale house, except that its wares have very evidently been chosen for a particular trade and with the wants of a somewhat peculiar class of buyers in view. A few months hence, the entire stock will have been distributed among retail trading establishments at distances of 200 miles along the Mackenzie River, and will have entered into the barter system of the North. Remembering that, one sees why the blankets should be so thick and woolly, why the sashes and prints and tartans should be so gay of color, why the cloths and trousers should be so firm and full of wear, they are for the North, and the North needs warm things and sound things. In another room is the stock of those other wares, which form an important part of the Northern trade, the things to eat and the tools to work with. There is the same substantiality in these as in the woven and knitted goods upstairs, with even less of the fancy goods appearance. Iron and steel wares are too heavy to freight a thousand miles, unless there is a use for them at the other end and a can of syrup is the nearest approach to the fine grocery line. A few months hence, Indian trappers, away down the Mackenzie, will be handling the knives and hatchets, and Indian housewives will be cooking up the flour and ladling out the syrup. It all seems very much like any other miscellaneous stock of merchandise, and is modern enough to fit well on the shelves and tables of almost any general supply house. Yet just the fact that these goods have been picked for the northern trade, and they are shortly to be offered for sale to the inhabitants of topmost Canada, differentiates the assortment from that in any other kind of warehouse on the continent. Since the days when Cartier and Champlain first traded beads and knick-knacks with the wandering chiefs at Quebec, there has been an interest, call it romance if you will, about the white man's trade with the red man. It has now been long driven back to the Northland, and it has grown from a barter of beads to an elaborate system of modernized commerce. But it is still the trade of the white with the red, and it still has its old-time fascination. That stock of goods represents the best that two continents can do for the wants of the Indian. In the olden days, the northern trade was supplied entirely from England. But with the growth of Canadian manufacturers, it has been found a better policy to outfit as much as possible in the home market, and such wares as ready-made clothing, knitted goods, 
in nearly all kinds of provisions, are of Canadian production. The greater part of the whole, however, still comes from over the sea. Three or four great importing houses in London and Glasgow send their travelers each year to catch the head traders on their return from the north in the fall. That is perhaps the most unique drummer work, in point of distance covered and territory represented, that is done within the empire. Other British houses sell through agents in Toronto and Montreal. In either case, they show their samples, quote their prices, and book their orders, just as for any other class of trade. But they must meet the particular demands of the northern trade, or they won't get next year's orders. It pays to cater to this trade from Canada's backdoor country, and nowadays, with a number of firms competing for it, things are being put up especially to suit the North. For instance, the trappers in the Peace of the Mackenzie country felt the need of something to wear as a foot covering inside their moccasins, a heavy fabric that would keep out the cold and keep in the natural foot warmth without becoming moisture-soaked. British mills produced a fabric that precisely met the want and the rolls of duffel on the floor upstairs are some of it, a thick woolly reversible cloth of which the trapper cuts a strip and winds it around his stocking feet. The Hudson's Bay Company had the monopoly of this happy thought for many years, and opposition firms were unable to find where or how it was made. But the secret leaked out, and duffel was now a common article of northern commerce. Rugs, blankets, tartans, tweeds, hats, and cutlery are among the other wares supplied from the English and Scottish mills. It is all good stuff, too. The Indian, the half-breed, or even the Eskimo is not to be put off with second-grade wares. He knows good quality in the things he uses and will have nothing else. When the Hudson's Bay Company first traded into the north, it instituted the policy of taking only number one stock, and this policy having been followed ever since, the Indian buyers have become educated to a keen appreciation of good quality. The high freight rates, too, work against the shoddy man. And since it costs as much to transport cheap goods as high-class goods, the traders have found it more to their profit to handle only honest stock. That does not at all mean that the clothes an Indian buys at a northern trading post are as dressy as you or I would choose or that the relishes he buys to fill out his bill of fare are as dainty as those on a white man's table, but of their kind they are all good and, as things go, worth their price. These shelffuls and tablefuls of made and unmade goods were to be divided among fifteen widely separated posts down the Mackenzie. The entire collection represented a portion of a year's supply for the north. Some had already gone forward. The rest had not as yet arrived from England. It was a straight-on-order stock. Every yard and pound of it had been ordered last autumn by the factors of the several posts, just as the country merchant makes up an order to fill his season's wants. The trading firm sends very little on its own initiative, unless it be some particular ware or new line which it thinks might profitably be introduced at its posts. But the responsibility of estimating the year's quantities is put entirely upon the factor, whose place it is to know the conditions and trade prospects of his especial field. What he orders, the firm sends. Summed together, it makes a very respectable consignment for the North. 
These 15 McKinsey posts, belonging to one of the independent companies, will total on their annual orders 2,100 pounds sacks of flour, 7,500 pounds of oatmeal, 7 tons of lump sugar, a carload of tea imported direct from Japan, 150 cases, or 7,200 pounds of syrup, 6 tons of tobacco, 420 pairs of blankets of a quality selling at Edmonton for $10 a pair, and other wares in proportion. Lard and jam are on every factor's list. A few stoves and sewing machines may be asked for, and private orders are made up for the factors themselves, or for gilt-edge customers that sometimes include gugas and notions. In all the North Country tributary to Edmonton, which means the Peace, Athabasca, and Mackenzie districts, straight to the Arctic coast, there are about 100 trading posts. The ancient and honorable Hudson's Bay Company, which began trading into this region nearly a century and a half ago, has 60 of these, and the remaining 40 belong to the world-known Revelon brothers in the Peace and Athabasca, Hislop and Nagel on the Mackenzie, and some four or five private concerns that have not as yet attained to very large proportions. To these hundred posts goes each year a stock of goods worth nearly a million and a quarter dollars at Winnipeg prices. From 20 to 25 percent must be added for cost of freight, making it easily a merchandise value when it reaches the north of one million five hundred thousand dollars in exchange for which a like value in furs is brought back. These furs, which all pass through Edmonton, more than double in value, however, when they reach London and Paris. That's where the profit in the northern trade comes in. Packing time comes for the northern freight as soon as the goods arrive from the mills, and as soon as there is snow enough for sledding. For the first hundred miles from Edmonton, which is the end of the railway, is by the horse and sled route. The Hudson's Bay Company sends out supplies for all its northern and northwestern posts from Winnipeg shipping by rail to Edmonton and thence by sled. The Edmonton office of the company is headquarters for the Peace and Athabasca district, but the Mackenzie posts report to Winnipeg, while all three districts look to Winnipeg for their supplies. The other traders, however, operate from Edmonton, receive their stocks there, and from there outfit their posts. Strong and tight must be the packages for the north, the boxes are packed solid and secure, iron-banded and then covered with sacking, all to the end that if upsets come en route, the iron bands will hold if the boxes break, and if wood and iron give way, the sacking will still keep things in. The boxes are kept as near as possible to 100 pounds each. Four days by sled, from Edmonton to Athabasca Landing, is the first freight stage in the real north. All through the winter, big loads of boxes and bales are kept moving along the hundred-mile trail, and the spring breakup finds a vast amount of merchandise ready for the water route. Athabasca Landing is the distributing point for the north. Navigation opens there about mid-May, when staunch northern-built steamers set out with full-up cargoes up the Athabasca and Lesser Slave Lake for the Peace River country, down the Athabasca for Great Slave Lake and the Mackenzie. On the last route, covering a distance of 2,000 miles, there's a deal of hard traveling. The first 160 miles, by steamer, are followed by 100 miles of rapids, through which nothing but open boats can be taken. 
The freight, therefore, is transferred to scows, ten tons to each, and put through the bad water by sheer manpower until steamer is taken again at Fort McMurray. Much of the same process is repeated down the Mackenzie, with frequent portages and shiftings of cargo, and on Great Slave Lake the scows are strung together and towed. The North Country scow is a boat of about 45 feet long, 14 feet wide, and 3 feet deep, built of North Sawn spruce and worth a hundred dollars. Five half-breeds, strong, reckless, happy-go-lucky offspring of the wilderness, man each boat with four at the oars and one at the sweep. Very seldom do they lose a cargo, for the half-breed is a navigator, seemingly proof against bad weather and bad water. He, nor any man, is equal, however, to bringing back his fleet as easily as he took it down. The greater number of the scows are sold at their journey's end for firewood, for the reason that only as many are brought back up the swift Mackenzie current as are needed to carry the return cargo of furs, and one scow can carry the fur equivalent of perhaps ten scow loads of merchandise. Each year, therefore, a new fleet of boats is built for the down trip, a side industry of considerable importance. Of steamers, there in all, about twenty on the northern rivers and lakes, of which the Hudson's Bay Company owns six, and the missions an equal number. This method of freighting costs money. The rate is fourteen cents a pound to the way down posts, which means fourteen dollars added to the price of a hundred pound sack of flour. On the return trip, the rate is twenty-two cents. One may look for high prices as a natural consequence. The traveler with some money in his pocket may have to pay fifty cents for a can of corn, even at Peace River Landing, and a dollar at Fort Graham. The northern store is not radically different in appearance from the average country store down east. It used to be a log-built house, pioneer in all its appointments, but it is a frame structure nowadays, neatly sealed and fitted with counter shelves and bins, like any trader's shop. The art of displaying goods is not unknown either, and samples of the stock are hung or laid about as prompters to the sometimes uncertain patrons of the establishment. The store is the hub, center, and heart of the settlement. It stands for power and authority, for industry and the reward of industry, for comfort and respectability, and the Indian of the North looks upon the trading post store even more in awe and admiration than we, as children, used to look upon the corner store down home. A few white settlers in the Peace River country, the forerunners of a large population soon to come, give a somewhat different character to the trade in that district. But the Mackenzie posts have only the Indians and the half-breeds as customers. It is trade by the barter system, as it has always been, and the amount of stock which each takes out is governed by the amount of fur which he brings in. A good year's catch per man runs at about $500. The average is nearer $200. And according to whether his furs count or the one figure or the other, will be comparative affluence or bare necessities for the Indian trapper. If, however, his traps played him even more poorly, or if he was lazy, and has but a handful of furs to trade with, it means that he must go without, even the necessities. He will live, but how, heaven only knows. There is, it is true, a credit system, and if an Indian bears a good reputation, he will be given advances upon his next season's furs. But the payment of a debt, or the necessity of paying it, 
depends, in the Indian's code of ethics, upon whether it is good for a year or not. If he dutifully sets his traps and no fur come, he considers the debt cancelled and is thereupon ready to open a new account. Nor can the storekeeper recover the old one. For this reason, the traders are discouraging the credit system, and while it will probably always be necessary to some degree, it will be infinitely better for the Indian himself when his trading is wholly upon a spot-down basis. The basis of trade is the made beaver skin. It is the uncoined money of the North, a wholly technical standard in terms of which the value of furs or merchandise is estimated as equal to so many skins. In actual money value, it varies from a quarter to a half dollar as one goes north. There's a standard of prices for the furs which is adhered to as closely as the competition between opposition traders will allow, and if the trapper is a fairly good arithmetician, he can figure up the extent of his shopping and whether or not he can afford luxuries or only necessities. At Arctic Red River and Fort McPherson, the traders are in the Eskimo country, and the funny, happy natives of the top edge of the continent have learned enough of the white man's good things to have become patrons of his stores. It is eatables rather than clothing that the huskies want, for garments of skin suit them better than wool, and such furs as they are able to bring to the posts are exchanged chiefly for lard, flour, sugar, and such-like substantials. The Eskimo has a somewhat different system of buying from that of the Indian. Instead of disposing of his furs in a lot and taking a lump price on them, he brings one at a time and buys its worth alone of merchandise. He uses the skin as we use a dollar bill, and seems to believe that in this way he gets more for his money. The annual visit of the supply boats to these Mackenzie posts is, it may be assumed, an event, but it is a hurried visit. The entire season is short enough to make the long trip down to McPherson and back again before the rivers freeze, and so one day's stop to unload the supplies and tell the news, and another on the way back to receive the factor's accounts and take on his furs is all, barring storm and sicknesses, that the trader is able to give each post. And even then, though he started early in May, it is the very last of September when he lands his harvest of the North in Edmonton. End of section 41. This recording is in the public domain.